Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We'll start at verse 23. But the focus of our time together uh, is really going to be one verse that's found down, uh, or two verses down in chapter 4, 4, 3 uh, through 5. So we're going to hone in there, but I I do want to read it in in its context. A few things to note. First, uh, you'll notice this repetitive language of sons. Uh, but you'll also notice that on the heels of being adopted as sons, look right what Paul says about who we are in Jesus. He actually says that there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, for we're all one. And so when you read sons in the context, he's just not talking about males. He's talking about all who are in Jesus. And so that's the first thing I want to note. Secondly, there are a lot of metaphors that Paul sort of uses interchangeably. On the one hand, he's going to say that we're imprisoned or enslaved to the law. He's going to call us being in bondage. But he's going to also tell us that the same law is also like guardians or managers in in Paul's day, which would have been, we think, tutors who would have walked uh, little children to school. Uh, And Paul is, in a way, saying the law, the Ten Commandments, function like that that they actually, it functions like a tutor that walks us to the school of grace. And so Paul is using these metaphors interchangeably, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of them, not all of them. But this is God's word, Galatians three twenty three. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, you are heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way, also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were also under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and that spirit cries, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. I want you to notice the advent and how it fits in this passage. That right there in verse 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law to redeem. And so as we think about Galatians and what we ought to be seeing is this way that the advent of Jesus is tethered to what's happening around it in Galatians. And here's what we're going to see in Galatians that Paul wants them to recall who they were. He wants them to marvel at who it is that freed them. And he wants them to, to, to make much of this new identity that they have now that one has come. And so I'll give you the, the, the sermon points, but let me pray for us and then we'll start. Father in heaven, be our teacher. Use your servant and uh, increase our affections. 
Show us who we are in you. We pray for those, Lord, who don't know you this morning and whose hearts are divided, who have not bowed the knee to Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you will use your word to show them the condition that they stand in and to show them who they can become in Christ Jesus. Father, only you can convict those who need convicting. Only you can encourage those who need encouragement. Only you can make the crooked things straight. And so that is my prayer, that your spirit would be free to have your way with your people during our time under your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2014, uh, Kevin Durant uh, was, uh, became the most valuable player in the NBA. And his acceptance speech is one of the most moving ones on record. It's so moving that, that there's a meme or memes out there, or maybe sayings out there that actually come from that acceptance speech. It's you're the real MVP. Some of you have heard that. Well, here's the context for why that happened. Kevin Durant is on the stage and he has his teammates behind him. He's in front of uh, a lot of people and he starts to cry. And he says, I never expected to be here in front of you in the NBA, let alone to be the MVP. He says, I'm from a rough part of the world. I'm from PG County right outside of Washington, D.C. And life was like a box. We were lucky to live to be 21. He goes on to say that my dream, my childhood ambition was to actually be a coach in a rec league and to help rescue little children. He says, we moved around a lot. And I can't imagine standing before you as the most valuable player in the NBA. He says, I was taught that when something good happens that I should look back and see what brought me here. And at that point, he looks to his right and he looks at his mother. And he says, I don't think you know what you did. The odds were stacked against us. We were poor. We moved from apartment to apartment. He says that our, my most memorable time as a kid was when we moved in our own apartment. We didn't have furniture. We didn't have couches. We didn't have beds. We just had each other and we hugged and I thought we made it. He says, mom, you took me to practice. Mom, you went to all of my games. Mom, you made me run heels. Mom, you stayed on me. Mom, you put clothes on our backs. Mom, you kept your two boys off the street as a single mother. And he says, when there was only enough food for two people in the household, me and my brother ate, and you went to bed hungry. And he looks at her, he says, you're the real MVP. He says, you're the real MVP. And he gets the award and he walks off the stage and he embraces that new identity. And that new identity comes with privileges. His name is forever etched in the history books as the most valuable player in the NBA. He has leverage now. When he goes to negotiate contracts, he is not just a third or fourth tier player. He has weight. He gets say-so in where he goes. He negotiates salary in a way that no other person can. His MVP comes with a new identity. 
Did you hear what he said, though? When something good happens, we should stop and think about how we got here. And what he does in his speech is tell us what he used to be like and what life was like growing up. He tells us, right, who it is that intervened and made sacrifice. And he walks away in this new identity. And we could say that in one sense, that's what Advent is about. Advent Redeemer is about stopping the rushing, the going, the doing. It's about stopping and sitting with who we used to be before we knew Jesus. And so it's a call to recall our slavery. It's a call then to rejoice in the Son. Who is it that has done something to change our identity? Who is it? The text will say it was the Son. It's a call to also rehearse your new identity. Rehearse your sonship. So those are the three points. Recall your slavery. Rejoice in the Son. Rehearse our sonship. First thing, Advent is a time to recall our slavery. If you look at this passage in context, what Paul is doing is he's doing the classic before and after. You've seen the photos started from the bottom. Now we're here. Right. Maybe. Right. You've seen people who get serious around this time of year about exercise and diet. And and we'll take a picture of what we were and what we weighed January the 1st. And then hopefully by March 31st, we got a new picture. And here's what we do. We do the before and we do the after. That's what Paul is doing in Galatians right here. He's saying before faith came, but now that faith has come. When we were children, but when the fullness of time had come. Formerly when you did not know God, but now that you have come to know God. That he's going back and forth. That's the fulcrum of the passage. It's a before, it's some intervention, and it's after. Now the question then is, what is the dominant metaphor that Paul uses to describe who we were before coming to know Jesus? Now, when you search Galatians and read it in its entirety, he uses the word slavery more in Galatians than it's used any other book in the New Testament. So Paul's concern is that those who are new will fall back into their slavery. What he wants to do is to shine light on who they were outside of Jesus and the language, that the, the, the term that dominates it is slave. So consider this, false brothers, this is Galatians 2, false brothers slipped in to spy out our freedom we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield even for a moment. Chapter 3, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned by it. Chapter 3, 22, but the scriptures imprisoned everything to sin. Chapter 4, verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. Chapter 4, verse 9, but now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak, weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? If you go back and read it, what he wants them to see is that way back, who you were before Jesus, you were slaves. Now, why that metaphor? First, we have to wrestle with what is metaphor? And why is it used? When do you use it? 
There are two leading linguists. Their names are George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, and they've co-authored a book on metaphor. Here's what they say about metaphor. The main function of metaphor is to provide a partial understanding of one kind of experience in terms of another kind of experience. In short, an understanding of the one thing is enhanced because of an understanding of another, right? So, for example, one of my favorite rappers, I'm cooler than a polar bear's toenail. You hear that? Now, that's a double metaphor. We know polar bears, polar bears live on ice or in frigid conditions. And if you're a polar bear living on ice or in snow, then maybe the toenail is like the coldest part of the body because it's direct contact with the elements, right? And so there's a metaphor. He's saying, I'm cooler than a polar bear's toenail. But does he mean he's freezing? No, it's another metaphor. The metaphor is cool can also mean what? I'm hip. So you see the double metaphor? You have to, you have to envision a polar bear and a toenail. And that lets you understand he's cold. And then there's another jump you have to make because of slang, because cold means I'm sick with it. And so what he's really saying is a double metaphor. Now, here's the thing about metaphor. Metaphor has to have a donor field. And it has to have a recipient field. What's a donor field in linguistics? It's the field that you're looking at that we know something about, that by studying this donor field, we can then infer that certain truths about this donor field help me understand this recipient field in a way that I would not have been able to understand. Y'all with it? So, what's the donor field? It's slavery. It's bondage. Used in Galatians more than any other book in the New Testament. What is the recipient field? What is Paul trying to get them to understand by looking at the donor field, by looking at slavery in the Greco-Roman world? What was he trying to get them to understand? Their condition, who they were before Jesus intervened. And what Paul would say, go look at slavery in the Greco-Roman world and the slaves will help you understand who you really are apart from Jesus. Which means to understand the bond servant, the imprisoned, the enslavement language, we actually have to go back to the source. So what do we learn about slavery in the Greco-Roman world? Here is what we know. First and foremost, Murray Harris says, at the end of first century in Italy, there were two million slaves out of a population of five million. In Rome, the ratio was one to three, one slave for every three citizens. In the entire Roman Empire of 50 to 60 million people, there were 10 to 12 million slaves. So the first thing you learn, it's prevalent. It's widespread, right? But slavery is defined as something contrary to nature where a person is subjected to alien dominion. Where you lack freedom. You lack autonomy. You lack 
power. How were slaves treated? It depended in Paul's day. There were rural and agricultural slaves, and there were urban and administrative slaves. Urban and administrative slaves were treated better. Some served as city employees. Others served as managers of shops and ships. But the great majority were farm and land laborers, often in chain gangs. Many of them were condemned criminals. Many faced appalling conditions. Some were household cooks, cleaners, tutors, even sexual partners. They were chattel. One Roman politician called slaves tools that happened to know how to talk. They were crucified or branded when they were defiant, dismembered if they were caught running away. Their bones were often broken for defiance. Hot tar was poured on them, restraining collars placed upon them. Many were raped and abused. Now why? Why would Paul, of all metaphors, tell them, go look at that? Why? Because with the eyes of faith, that's us. Apart from Jesus, we are in bondage. We're in bondage to our sin. Apart from Jesus, we give birth to children who are slaves of unrighteousness. Apart from Jesus, the law of God torments us. It reminds us day in and day out and day in and day out that we don't measure up. It reminds us day in and day out that there is an, a, a, an eternal punishment for the ways that we fall short of the glory of God, that, that they remind us over and over and over again that our fallenness and our slavery, it is indeed vast. And see, unlike American chattel slavery that was built towards one ethnic group, in Paul's day, there was no distinction between ethnic group. Anybody could be a slave. And so what Paul is saying in our day and age, look out there. Everyone is in bondage apart from Jesus. Look out there that it doesn't matter if you're white or you're black or you're brown or you're wealthy. Everybody apart from Jesus is in bondage to their sin. Their sin is eating their lunch. And maybe you don't believe that. Here's a question for you. Have you ever thought about it, that, that even us as believers, that we still bear the marks of our former slavery in our lives? Yes, Jesus delivered you. Yes, you were a fornicator. Yes, you were an adulterer. And you are new right now. But those chains start to rattle when you're tempted to lust. Yes, you used to break the Sabbath, throw parties into Sunday mornings, buying the club out, popping bottles, right? That used to be your life. But even now on the Lord's day, isn't it tempting to stay home and to stay away from the body and to get up when you want to get up and to sing praises to your own self and to decide what you want to do with your day and your time? That, that's the chain of your former bondage rattling at your ankles. And you used to be a thief. You used to hustle 
apostle, and now you want to steal time at work, right? Like, if you just trace our lives, I don't think any one of us in this room, if we were telling the full truth, can say that we don't feel the marks of our former slavery, even right now as new beings. We feel it. And if you're not in Jesus, you're still in bondage. Your conscience bears witness to your soul that you're not right. Your conscience bears witness to your soul that you don't measure up. Your conscience and the God at work is reminding you over and over and over and over again by the things you say you want to conquer but you keep falling, that you are in bondage. Advent is a time to remember it and to recall it. And what you deeply most is give us free. Make me free. And that's the good news about Advent. Because Advent tells us that emancipation is possible. Advent tells us that, that, that someone came and broke the shackles. Someone came and made your darkness light. Someone came and paid the penalty for your sins. Someone came to bring us near to the Lord. And the question is who? Who did something about our slavery and our predicament? It's the Son. Advent is a time to rejoice in the sun. So notice the, the slavery language. It's all in Galatians. And then look at verse 4, right? At the end of verse 3, we were enslaved, not just to the law, but to the elementary principles, the idols of the world. But, and that's the divine conjunction, but when the fullness of time had come, right there, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were captive to the law. You see that? In the fullness of time, God sent something. He sent someone. This is one of the most important passages in Galatians, and here's why. Up until this point, Paul's focus has been on the crucifixion of Jesus. In Galatians 1, Grace to you and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. You get that? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus was portrayed as crucified. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written that cursed is anyone who hanged on a tree. That what Paul has been doing all in Galatians is crucifixion, 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 the giving of his life on the cross. And what he does that's unique to anywhere else in the book is he doesn't talk about the crucifixion here. Well, he, he alludes to it. But you know what he talks about here? The incarnation. You see that? God sent his son, born of woman, born under law. What is Paul trying to get them and us to do? to wrap our minds around the incarnation where God would take on flesh. J.I. Packer has written a book, Knowing God, and I'm sure many of you have read it. If not, I would encourage it. 
But here's what he writes. The supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us does not lie in the Good Friday message of the atonement, nor in the Easter message of the resurrection, but in the Christmas message of the incarnation. The staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man. The second person of the Godhead became the second representative of the entire human race, determining human destiny and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. That God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on the earth as a helpless babe, unable to do more than stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught like any other child. Think about that. He goes on to say the crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of the steps down that led the Son of God to the cross of Calvary. Whoa, now now take that in. What Packer is doing, he's acknowledging the beauty of the crucifixion, that Jesus would do some amazing things. He healed the sick. He walked on water. He fed the thousands. He stopped executions. He cured issues of blood that no doctor could do. He forgave sins. He went to a cross. He was perfect in obedience. He took the sins of the world upon his body. He bore them on a tree. He died a a real death and went into the grave. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. He appeared to many. He was ascended to the right hand of the Father. He rules right now over the church, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He is preparing a place for us now to bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. And what J.I. Packer says, that's important. But guess what the first step in all of that is? There is no cross if there is no cradle. There is no death for our sins if there is no birth of the son. So what he's saying is, look, what Paul is doing is actually walking us steps back and back and back and back and saying this, that what Advent reminds us of is God coming down. And if you can wrap your minds around God incarnate, then the rest of the things that Jesus did follow suit. If Jesus really is God, and he really was born in the uterus of a creature, and he remained fully God and fully man, If that is true, then all of this other stuff follows suit with his character and his coming. Now, here's the thing. What was Jesus doing? Why born of a woman? Why born under the law? Why born to a Jewish family that that kept Sabbath? Why join, be born to a Jewish family that, that knew the Torah? Why be born to a Jewish family that had him circumcised? Why keep up all the feasts? Now, why was he born of woman and under the law? It's because we are born of women. And we are born under law. And what Jesus would do was he would step down into our condition in every way like us. Why? So that at the end of his earthly life, he could make redemption for us. 
You see, redemption is a Jewish thought. A kinsman redeemer can step in and pay the debt. The kinsman redeemer can free a slave from bondage. And what Jesus does through his life, it's me. I'll be a suitable redeemer. I'll take on flesh and be like them. The law wants perfection. I'll give it. The law demands punishment. I'll pay it. If it means that me paying my life results in the slaves being freed. There was a movie we recently watched, and it's called The Unforgivable. Anyone here seen The Unforgivable? Raise your hand. All right, I see two or four. So look, it's been out a month, y'all, so I can spoil it for you. I'll try not to spoil all of it, but y'all done had a month, right? So in the movie, it stars Sandra Bullock, who's one of our favorite actresses, and Viola Davis, another one of our favorite actresses. So here's the premise of the movie. Sandra Bullock is released from prison. She served a 20-year prison sentence. And at the beginning of the movie, it's obvious that she has committed murder. She's murdered a cop. Her mom has died. Her dad committed suicide. And Sandra Bullock is perhaps a late teenager raising her five-year-old sister. And they come to repossess the house and there's so much trauma in their life that they, they can't fathom going nowhere. And so what you see is you see an officer trying to come in the back door to get them out of the house. You hear a gunshot. You see an officer go down. They arrest Sandra Bullock, and she goes to prison. And she serves 20 years. And for 20 years, she's lost contact with her five-year-old sister who's now in college. A family adopted her, brought her in, gave her a really good, stable life. And for 20 years, Sandra Bullock writes to try to talk to her sister. But the family hides all the letters. On the day that Sandra is released, two families are notified. The adoptive family, hey, she's out. And Sandra had to sign a no-contact order, or that would be a violation of parole. They want her, they want nothing to do with her and the family of the slain officer. And the movie really is about her as this convict who's trying to make it in life. She can't keep a job because the police harass her. She goes and get a job and they make a phone call and she's, she loses the job. She tries to reach out to her sister and trying to track them down to no avail. And finally, she meets Viola Davis's husband, who's a lawyer. And he has a soft spot for her. And he agrees to try to pursue her family to see if they can establish contact. And it almost works and then it kind of blows up. And then the most powerful scene in the movie is when Sandra's desperate. She just wants to see her baby sister. And she goes to the lawyer's house and she begs Viola Davis, let me see your husband. Where is he? And Viola Davis comes out of the house. I'm sick of you. 
that you're the problem. You've traumatized your sister by your actions. Never come to my house again. Never call my husband again. I refuse him to ha I refuse him having you as a client. And at that point, Sandra Bullock loses it. And she says she was just five years old. She was just five years old. And then you get a scene from what happened on the day when the officer died. And you realize that Sandra Bullock did not pull the trigger. It was the five year old girl who was traumatized. She actually picked up the gun and she shot the officer. And what her big sister did for her. Send me to prison. I'll go do 20 years if it means that she gets a safe home. I'll go have my life wrecked if it means that her life is stable. I will carry the brunt of her payment. I will carry the brunt of what she did if it means that she goes free. Do you hear the gospel in that? That what you have in Jesus is a big brother? You're guilty and I'm guilty. And what your big brother does, because justice, God's justice demands payment. Justice, Jesus says, I will take, I will go to prison. I will have my life taken if it means that my younger sons and daughters and brothers can go free. That is redemption. It's Jesus coming to redeem us under the law with his perfect life and his atoning death. And guess what? That is what frees us. That is what takes us from slaves. That is what makes us right in the sight of the Lord. And so Christianity Redeemer is not just the cross or the tomb. It's the incarnation and the womb. Easter tells us the rescue mission was completed. Christmas says the rescue mission was started. Easter says that Christ would die. Advent tells you that Jesus had to be born. Christianity is a religion of cross and nails and thorns and the blood of crucifixion, but it's also a religion of the miraculous conception, the pregnancy, the stable, and the blood of childbirth. It all goes together to redeem us from our sins. How do we respond to this son, we worship, we bow, we trust, we receive. You don't work for your freedom, you receive it from the works of another. And that's why faith is such a theme. Paul does not want them to go down that path. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is slavery any other way. Lastly, Advent is a time to rehearse our sonship. We're going to recall our slavery. We're going to rejoice in the sun. We're going to re rehearse our sonship. What's interesting in, 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 uh, in our passage is that what Paul could have written is that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might be free. Right? That's what, I, I actually think that's what the original 
readers would have been expecting Paul to write. Now, why? Because there was a formal process for freeing slaves, and it was called manumission. A slave could be freed formally if the father of the household did so. And some of them could get Roman citizenship, but some of them could get Roman citizenship and still not have all the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship. Some newly freed slave could never pick up a weapon and fight in the Roman army. Some newly freed slave did not have all the privileges. They could not stand for office. They could not hold political positions in society, but they would be free. And here is what Paul does that is mind-blowing. He doesn't just free slaves. The father adopts them. That's a higher privilege. If I'm in a negative and I'm a slave, then just freeing me puts me at zero. But what the gospel says is God does not just free you from your sins. God ups us infinitely by doing more than freeing us, but adopting us as sons and daughters. And since we're sons and daughters, we're we're also heirs. And that is infinitely better than being a slave. Now, here's the thing. If slavery is the metaphor Then the other metaphor here is adoption in Greco-Roman world. That when Paul uses this adoption language as sons, then what we have to do is go back to the source, go back to the donor field. What do we learn about adoption in the Greco-Roman world that should help us understand our new identity? That's what Paul is doing. So what do we know about adoption in Paul's day? Only the father, the pater familias, could initiate it. A slave could not. It was a legally binding contract that needed seven witnesses, and it could not be undone. It it marked a complete ending of your previous family. It inaugurated a new beginning. The adopted child's status was the same as a biological child. The new child was an heir to the estate of the father. The new child took the father's name and his rank in society, and this new child received affection from the adopting father. Now, why is that important? Because that helps you understand how God views you, Redeemer. You did not initiate your salvation. That was initiated by the Father. He looked upon you in your filth and in my filth, and he said, I want them in my family. That it's legally binding. He will never by no means, any means, cast you away. You have secure attachment in the home and the family of God now and forever. That nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not things present, not things to come, not heights, not depths, not demons, not anything you can make of your life will sever this adoption that you have through Jesus. You have the status of the biological child. This is why the Bible tells us 
enter his throne room of grace with boldness. Some days of the week, my kids come to my office and they don't have to knock. They just walk on in. And sometimes I got candy wrappers on the floor and the pillows are out of whack and they got drool on the couch. But those are my kids and they have access to me, their daddy. Do you believe that? That in the way that our kids will come near to us, that we have that type of access and intimacy with the Father in heaven? It's ours. And we are heirs, which means that we will inherit not only all that the Father has. Jesus says, what I have is yours. We will inherit him forever and ever and ever and what God has done now in the here and now because we're weak and we doubt this sonship he says I'm actually sending the spirit of my son to you and my own spirit will get into your hearts and my spirit will bear witness to your soul that you are a child and he will cry out Abba Father in you and that cry is not for him he knows who he is that cry inside of you in the depth of who you are out to God that cry is God himself putting the spirit of Jesus in you to let you know that there is warmth and access and protection and provision and security in this relationship that you have with God the Father. Do you see this? You are not only not a slave, you are an heir, you are a son, you are a daughter of the king, and that is yours forever and ever and ever and ever. And so Advent is a season to rehearse your sonship. Draw near to your God, love on him, rest in him, honor him, worship him, enjoy him, learn from him, rest in his grace. It's an invitation to rest in his goodness to you through Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your spirit would bear witness with our souls not just of what we were and who we were, but who we are now in Jesus. And none of this will be possible outside of the work of Jesus. And so, Jesus, we pause and we thank you for taking on flesh, being born of a woman to redeem us from the law and its curses. Father, I pray for those who do not know you. Might today be a day of simple faith where they see their sin, they see your provision in Jesus, they respond with faith and repentance, and they are crowned as heirs and co-heirs with Jesus. Do this for your namesake, we pray. Amen.